Hello and welcome back to season two of Alan and Ovary's launch, this time recorded remotely. My name is Bianca Vasilake, and I will be your host on the podcast for demystifying the process of getting into law and exploring both the opportunities you will have in your legal career and, of course, what that career might take you. Today's episode is Brave New Legal World. Insights from the Global Managing Partner. And we're very lucky to have with us Gareth Price, who was elected as ANO's Global Managing Partner earlier this year in May. And before that, he was the Global Head of Projects and the Global Co-Head of Energy for eight years. Thank you very much for joining us, Gareth. Thank you, Bianca. It's a pleasure to join you for your podcast today. So just starting with the basics, I think, because ANO, like many other firms, has two leadership roles. There is the senior partner role, which now is held by Wim De Jong, and there is the global managing partner role, which is currently held by Ye. What does each role entail and how common is the structure among law firms? In many ways, the organization and leadership structure of each law firm has evolved to reflect its history and its changing needs and requirements. It's not uncommon for large law firms to split their leadership, and A&O is really no exception. In simple terms, the roles of senior partner and managing partner are similar to those of an executive chairman and a chief executive in a corporate context. In practice, there's a great deal of overlap between the roles, and Wim and I work closely together on a day-to-day basis leading the firm. I think that's very interesting, because given that law firms are partnerships, I think people often have difficulties making too close of an association with companies. So it's very interesting that in terms of management, it's actually quite similar. And with that in mind, as I mentioned in the intro, you were the global head of projects and the global co-head of energy for eight years. So you have been part of the firm's management for quite a while. When did you decide to run for the global managing partner role and why? Wow, that's a great question, Bianca. Um, (laughs) So um, it was something that I've been thinking about for a while, as after eight years, it was time for other partners to to have the opportunity to bring their leadership and ideas to our global projects group and energy sector. Mm -hmm. And so when Andrew Bullheimer decided not to run for a second term as managing partner, the opportunity really presented itself. I'm an A&O lifer, and I believe passionately in our firm. I'm very ambitious for it to become even more successful than it is today. And right now at this time, I think that I can best contribute to that success in my new role. As to eligibility, well, the senior partner and the managing partner positions are open to all partners. Any partner can put themselves forward. Regardless of seniority. Regardless of seniority. But I suppose the ultimate eligibility test is whether your fellow partners will buy into what you are saying and will they support you? So I took some soundings from people that I trust within the firm and most importantly from my family, particularly my wife. And after those soundings, I um, decided to put my hat into the ring and see how I got on. And you mentioned that the most important element is just to see if the other partners in the firm buy into your plan and your ideas. And I do know that most law firms have an election process, and being no exception, of course. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about what the election process is like and how you prepared for it. Because what I have in mind are political elections and the law firm one being a different version of it, but just across all of our offices. So I'm actually curious what it's like in real life. 
What's it like in real life? Well, the election process really kicks off in the new year. So the first thing it does is destroy your Christmas. Oh, uh, I mean, that's a great way to start the year. It, it's a great way to start the year. <laughs> and um, leading a firm like A&O is just an enormous privilege. And as I said earlier on, the most important thing is winning the trust of your partners. So during the process, it's, it's absolutely vital that your fellow partners have this opportunity to hear what you stand for, to understand the values, to understand what drives you, to understand why you want to change your role in the firm. To understand what new ideas you might bring to the role. So really the most important thing is getting around and seeing all your partners face-to-face, ideally in one-to-one meetings, but if that just isn't possible, at least in a group meeting. But of course, this year's process was was disrupted by COVID. A number of us were on our way to Hong Kong and we were in Singapore at the time and actually the quarantine came down and we couldn't get out to Hong Kong. And so we sat to spend some extra nights in Singapore, quickly arranging video conferences to see our partners that we weren't going to be able to meet in person. And then dropped down to Sydney for the weekend, hoping for some good weather, but unfortunately managed to um, walk straight into the once-in-a-generation storms down there. So um, oh what should have been a, a lovely weekend outdoors turned into being confined to a hotel room. But it was great to see all of the partners and then finally get back home by the end of February, then went off skiing for a week, took my brain out and then um, <laughs> waited for the results. And then you got your delayed Christmas present since your Christmas had been ruined. Yeah, it's such an interesting process. The caliber of the all of the candidates was truly amazing. We actually traveled together quite a lot, a number of us. Oh, so really? we, got, we got to know each other better. Okay. Um, and that's probably where it is a bit different to a sort of political campaign in the sense of a government. And that's really important because during the election period, the firm still has to move on. There needs to be business as usual. But also... A&O shouldn't be a political place in the negative sense of that word. All of the candidates, because they're standing, will have the best interests of the firm at heart. And we all have to work together afterwards as part of the leadership team. And so ensuring that those important bonds of and, you know, holding to our values and making sure that the respect is there is a critical part of the process. And actually, I think our partners are well alive to that. None of the partnership would want to see a political process. And as I said earlier on this year, we were often in the same offices at the same time, meeting partners often immediately after each other. So we could then compare notes as candidates afterwards, which was quite good fun. We all had high quality discussions and that's been incredibly valuable because all of us are in the leadership team together. It is a leadership team. And that shared experience of going around the world, listening to our partners has really helped all of us, I think, understand the aspirations of the partner group and given us some great ideas about the future direction of the firm. When you go around and you meet the partners, of course, you have your plan about why you would like to be if you get elected. But I assume that a lot of that might change as well, depending on the different inputs from around the world. I think that one of the great things about A&O, there's so much that unites us. If you talk to any A&O partner or, or indeed any A&O member of staff, I think you'll find a dedication to clients, people and communities. And those three things really run through the heart of A&O. They're, they're mm-hmm. the center of our purpose and therefore they become part of our strategy. Yeah. And so whilst you might have to flex and slightly change policies to take into account a local nuance or a particular client requirement, the fundamental principles remain the same. We want to be an organization that puts client service first, that is perfectly positioned to advise our clients and the most difficult, their most strategic matters all over the world. We want to be a place where people can achieve their potential, where they can bring the best of themselves to the workplace, whether that's virtual or physical, always enabling you to bring the best of yourself to the workplace. And on yeah. communities, you know, we 
We need to be valuable members of the communities that we touch. It's not enough to sit in a community and just buy sandwiches at the local sandwich shop. There's much more to being a participatory member of a community than that. And that sense of contributing to the community, I think, is an incredibly important part of A&O. And certainly those three aspects, community, people and clients, all of my conversations with partners centered around them. And so, yes, we flex a little for the local nuance because, you know, the glorious thing about the world is every country is slightly different. Every practice yeah. group for us is slightly different. And then even within the practice groups that, you know, the clients are also slightly different as well. But the broad principles and what we're aiming for, they all remain constant and consistent. And fundamentally, it's not my business. It's not Wim's business. It's our business. And yeah. so our job is, is really just to enable the partners to be the very, very best guardians of the business for as long as they are partners. And that's really our role. Drive it forward and hand it on a better condition than we found it. That's really interesting and very insightful. I'm sure, I mean, for me, definitely. And I'm sure for our listeners as well. And you've been Global Managing Partner for a few months now. So I was wondering if you could share what a typical day looks like. And just out of curiosity, do you still work on transactions or has your focus shifted more towards the managerial tasks? Okay, so I'm, I'm going to take the typical day bit first. Okay. I don't think I have a typical day anymore. I mean, like many people, the world was turned upside down in the UK, wasn't it, at the end of February, start of March. So pretty much from the moment I knew I'd been elected, I've been dealing with the effects of the COVID pandemic. So I think I got told on a Thursday afternoon that I was going to be the managing partner. And at 9.15 on the Friday, I was in a COVID planning meeting. Now, a baptism of fire. A real baptism of fire. <laughs> um, in many respects, we were lucky because... Our colleagues in Asia had already been responding to the situation. And so we yeah. already had a deep pool of knowledge to draw upon. We could talk to Victor in China and, and, and Vicky in, in Hong Kong in particular and learn from them as to the things that had worked and the things that hadn't worked. And honestly, that was invaluable for us in getting up to speed very quickly, understanding what would happen next, because none of us really knew what to expect at that point. I mean, who would have thought that the lockdown would have been so long? I think in May, if you ask people and you said that by the end of August, we'll still be in lockdown. Every, I mean, most people would have just laughed. You're like, no, that's not possible. No, well, I, I, I'm afraid I was on the slightly pessimistic side. Oh. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, I was pretty sure we'd still be going through the summer in some form of virtual working. It was always going to be a very, very long ride to understand quite how we can get out of the other side of this. And that switch to remote working, you know, it happened incredibly quickly, didn't it? Yeah. As we were talking about before we started recording, I haven't been in the office for some time. I haven't actually been in since I was managing partner. Um, I know that my stuff's been packed up and moved around somewhere, but I don't actually know where it is. So I'm going to try and get in for my taste today, later this week to, to see how things are. But it wasn't the way I expected to start the role. But the truth of it is, is that I recognize that I'm incredibly fortunate. You know, I've got some outside space. I've got a separate office at home. I've got a couple of dogs that keep me on my toes. I try to help my wife out with some of the homeschooling, although it's fair to say the kids would definitely prefer that I didn't. Um, <laughs> uh, my, my skills are definitely not in the teaching arena, but I'm incredibly fortunate. And I know that a lot of people, both A&O and outside, have found this a really very, very difficult experience. And so, you know, we need to reflect on that looking forward as to how do we take the good from this? How do we accelerate out of the pandemic? And keep hold of what we've learned, but also go back to the best of the old as well, because yeah. there's a lot of good things about how we used to work. The future's all going to be around. How do we get the best of the old and the best of the new? 
you also asked me a question about the scope of the role, I think. And yeah, so, um, I, I was just curious because, I mean, COVID, even without COVID, I'm sure that you're, you're plenty busy with running the firm. So I was wondering, was the split between the transactional work that you still do, client work and managerial role? So the scope is pretty broad, to be honest with you. There's the regular flow of the firm. So there's the regular board meetings, the regular ex-co meetings. And then every week I'll have regular review and update meetings with different parts of the business and also okay. with teams that are looking at particular projects. So that just goes on. And then during the business day, I might be on a call in the morning with our office and our regional heads. And then in the afternoon, I could be talking to a partner about an area of concern for them. Yeah. Honestly, I do most of my prep work in the early mornings and the evenings. I've got two teenage kids. And so I try, if I can, to keep Saturday free. So I try to work Sunday evening if I can, rather than work throughout the weekend. I think my family will probably say I fail more often than I succeed, but I do at least try, <laughs> Bianca. I do try. There's an attempt. There is an attempt, exactly. Um, but I, you know, I resolve to get better every week. Um, in terms of client work, you know, the reality is, is with all of that going on, you know, the regular flow and then the things that come out of nowhere and the pandemic, the role does require a very high degree of focus and therefore a lot of time. And that means that in practice, I am going to have to step back from leading transactions from the time being, but that doesn't mean that I'm leaving clients behind. I'm keen to maintain as much direct client contact as I possibly can, particularly where it's something that I can do to help other teams win new work or develop an existing client relationship. And I think you probably know I was I was very involved in low carbon energy in my practice. And so I do continue to be involved with one or two clients in the decarbonization arena, particularly nuclear power and offshore wind projects is, is what I'm continuing to give advice on. But really the managing partner role takes up 100% plus of, of the available business day. And on the global managing role and devising the firm strategy, what are the three key priorities for the next four years and how will they be implemented? If you can share that with our listeners. Okay, so obviously the last few months, we've been very focused on responding to the pandemic. That's been our number one priority, looking after the business, looking after the well-being of our people, making sure that we're available for our clients. And that's taken a huge amount of effort. But we didn't just worry about the immediate. All the way through that, we were thinking about, okay, how do we accelerate out of this? How do we emerge from this in a stronger position? How do we emerge from this better able to serve our clients wherever and whenever they need us? So, for example, we've continued to invest. You know, there were 29 new partners made up this year. Each and every one of them is an amazing young lawyer, each and every one of them. And they're going to have great, great careers. And it's really important to keep looking forward because you can't just plan for tomorrow. Allen & Overy is an intergenerational business. It's one where partners hand it over to the next generation. So you have to have a view to the medium and the long term all the time. Okay, standing still is going backwards. Okay, standing yeah. still is going backwards. And so that makes perfect sense, especially when everyone else is moving forward. Exactly. Exactly. And so that that's really been a huge focus. Beyond that, there's the three things that I mentioned to you before. Clients, people, and communities will always remain at the heart of our firm to think about clients at our commitment to global reach and local depth and advanced delivery of our services has been proven to be successful. And you can see this in the results from last year where we had revenue growth across all of our global practices. And so the combination of the widest international network of our peers, genuine deep local insight, and this market leading position in use of technology and alternative client services is increasingly compelling to our global clients. And so 
I really don't see any change in that global reach and local depth. Alternative delivery is going to be a key part of where you see Allen and Overy. Now to do that, we can't be complacent. Yeah. We have to continue to invest in people and technology if we're going to maintain our place in the global elite of law firms. So this will undoubtedly need us to continue to invest. I would imagine there'll be further strengthening in the US and in our Asian capability, but there'll also be investment in the rest of the world as well. And you'll also see this continued focus on alternative delivery so that we can provide, we can move beyond providing advice on an individual issue to a client to really giving them an end-to-end solution for their most pressing legal and regulatory needs. That's really where I think the business will be in five to 10 years time. And that's, and that's really what we're focused on end to end need for clients on their on their most complex matters on the people side of things. We're committed to being a diverse and inclusive workplace. I, I, I talked before about the importance of being somewhere where everybody feels at home, where everybody has the opportunity to achieve their potential. And that that's incredibly important to the whole of the leadership team because there's a societal responsibility to do that. But there's also good business sense because A&O is composed of two things. It's people and it's knowledge. And without the two of them, we're nothing. And so continuing to invest in our people, continuing to ensure that we give everybody the chance to shine, to really focus on potential and not just achievement, because some things might take people longer. Mm-hmm. You have to put it, you have to put people's potential and achievement into the context of their history and give them the time to develop to be the best that they can be. We've made a huge amount of progress around our diversity and inclusivity agenda, but there's always much more that can and should be done. A good example of some recent work is the announcement of our race and ethnicity targets and also our stay gap in the UK. But DNI is something that is front of mind for all of the leadership team uh, on a daily basis. It's not something that we just pick up and put down. It's something that is interwoven through pretty much everything we do. And then finally on communities, I, I mentioned communities before, and it might sound odd to have a you know a, a business leader talking about the community that they exist in, but I think that being this valuable and valued member of the community it is is part of who we are. It's part of what defines A and O. Yeah. Given my background in decarbonisation, you can certainly expect to see a continuing focus on pushing down our, our carbon footprint. I have to um, say, I'm not that keen on the paper straws. <laughs> I will I'll get it's, rid of the paper it's, straw. It's a timer. I think I think when you use a paper straw, you become very aware of how long it takes you to finish the drink because the paper straw will just let you know when you've taken too long. It will, but the, the, <laughs> the, the, paper, the paper straws are much, much friendlier to the environment than those horrible microplastic-based straws. Um, it's a small sacrifice. It's, it's a small sacrifice. <laughs> you could do without the straw, I suppose. Yeah, you can just drink from the cup. That's also yeah. possible. <laughs> um, but, you know, as well as the carbon footprint side of things, I think you, you'll see more of a, a focus on some of the wider UN Sustainable Development Goals because they give you a good framework in which to consider your impact, not just on the environment, but on society. And if we can start to really hold ourselves to account against those goals, then I think that will really help us contribute towards further improving our status as a responsible business. And just in terms of the more junior members of the team so trainees and associates while they you know they enjoy developing their legal and client skills it's sometimes difficult to know how we can contribute in carrying out or even 
shaping the firm's strategy, the strategy that we just discussed. So I was wondering, what are some practical ways of getting involved with the firm as a business when you are at the very beginning of your career? And I'm taking notes now as well. Okay. So I think the starting (laughs) point is, is to recognize that nobody, including the partners, has a monopoly on good ideas. So I think the best way for a young lawyer to influence the firm's direction is is get to know us so that your ideas are informed and then be prepared to contribute. Be brave. What's the worst that can happen? You can have one of those really dreadful ideas. (laughs) As long as it's it's well-intentioned, then it might just be a great idea. You'll you'll be forgiven and everyone will just have a laugh. They'll think you were joking and then you can just brush it off. But just try it off quietly. Try your idea off with a, two or three friends, see if it works, and if it works, bring it forward. There's nothing wrong with experimenting. I think that's really helpful. And what advice would you have for students or graduates who are looking to start their legal careers? I think we probably need to start with an acknowledgement, which is it probably feels quite uncomfortable right now. Yeah. The world is, it's a scary place. It's a much scarier place than many of us have growing up knowing there's probably a greater degree of uncertainty than you felt before and and that's only normal you know as you move from your sort of academic life into a vocational life and you know into you know developing as a young professional that brings with it its own uncertainties but doing that through a global pandemic doing that through the recession that will follow doing that through the uncertainty of not knowing that there's an end it's not like a 400 meter race where you know that you're going to get to the tape Right now, we don't. We hope that there is an end, but we don't know what that end is, and we don't know what it looks like. And so, that uncertainty, let's acknowledge it, because um, by acknowledging it, we can start to try and see some of the positives. And so, if we look back over other storms that have affected the wider economy, without being complacent, generally speaking, the legal profession has weathered those storms pretty well. The second thing I think I'd probably say is. The pace of technology adoption is going to accelerate. It is going to accelerate. And so I'd encourage all of you to engage with it. Okay, now, mm-hmm. I suspect I don't need to give you all that encouragement because, you know, you all seem pretty well engaged already, to be honest with you. Um, but <laughs> I would encourage you to embrace it. A&O and, you know, big law in general will become a people business enabled by technology. It's not going to be a technology business delivered by people. So mm-hmm. the people and the knowledge and that this, the importance of this tacit knowledge is still going to be there. But really understanding how technology can enable you to deliver high levels of client service and importantly, improve your work-life balance because yeah. technology in an ideal world makes everybody's life better, not just higher, faster, deeper advice to clients. Yeah. So I'd encourage everybody to, to, to really get engaged with that, to be excited about it. Not to be nervous if you don't quite understand it's full of acronyms. But actually- I mean, we are dedicating, I think, about three, three or four episodes this season to legal tech. Good. Um, I think that should also get across the, the subtle message that it's very important. And it's important to be confident and comfortable with it. That's right. Absolutely right. And it's difficult okay? for some associates who are perhaps a little bit older than you. Change is always difficult. You've got a way of doing it. It works for you. Why would you do it differently? Well, that's what the people that made typewriters thought. 
but that's within a lifetime. You know, we there were typewriters all over the building when I started as a trainee in 1994. So embrace it, embrace the change, treat it as something that's exciting. But I think um, you know the, the best advice that I was given. I think it still holds true today. Is you have to accept the responsibility to own your own future. So seek out work and experiences that interest you and that will help you develop. But also think really carefully about turning down consciously or subconsciously an opportunity as you never know where it will take you. Honestly, there's no dress rehearsal for life. So just get out there, work hard and have some fun um, because yeah. that way you'll have no regrets. And speaking of fun, we like ending our episodes on this podcast with a little game. Last season, we had some off-the-wall questions just to throw off the speakers. This season, we are going for a game of two truths and a lie. Oh. And it would be great if you could tell us three statements, two truths and a lie. And then I will have maybe 30 seconds or one minute to ask some follow-up questions to try to figure out which one is the lie. And we will do that on the following episodes as well. So hopefully my track record won't be too terrible. <laughs> oh, I need to think really carefully about the lie, don't I? Okay. Yeah, the truths as well. It's just they all need to be believable. like interesting enough, but still believable. It can't be too out there. Okay, so I have a dog that is named after a Peaky Blinders character. Okay. So if you haven't watched Peaky Blinders, you're in trouble now, Bianca. I mean, I haven't. <laughs> yes. I know. I know you have two dogs because you mentioned yeah. this, so I know that the the I have a dog part is true. Let's see the other the other two statements. Oh, I was hoping to get you. Thinking about that one first. Okay. Um, I worked as a fishmonger whilst I was studying for my A-levels. Okay. And the third one? My mother tongue is Welsh. Okay. Can you say... I'm about uh, to get busted really quickly, aren't I? <laughs> Can you say, uh, my name is Gareth and I'm really enjoying this interview in Welsh? Uh, I won't be able to tell if it's true, but our listeners whose mother tongue is Welsh will know. So I can't... Oh, no, you've got me, Bianca. You see, I... <laughs> I had a father. I had a father with a sense of humour. So I was. I'm actually English. We think, um, but <laughs> my uh, dad gave me and my brother Welsh names because we lived in a small suburb of Chester, which is over the border. But then sent us to school in England, which, <laughs> if you live in a border town, is is pretty much a form of cruelty. To be totally honest with you, so no, you got me. I should have prepared better for that. You see, I, sh I, I could have guessed. It. I was desperate trying to tap on my iPhone to see if I could get it to say it for me, but I couldn't do it quickly enough. <laughs> I, I do want to know more about being a fishmonger, though. I mean, especially now that I know it's true. Yeah. Um, where was that? And how did that, how did that come about? So I got a Saturday job. Well, it was a, I, worked two nights a, I worked all day Saturday and two nights a week in a Sainsbury's. And for reasons that are quite beyond me, I got put into one of the speciality departments. And so I got 
I was on the fish desk and I can honestly say that it is the greatest curtailment of my social life ever. <laughs> uh, on a Saturday, uh, finishing work at seven o'clock on a Saturday night and then going out. Smelling wonderfully. So, you just know. Smell, just smelling. That, that <laughs> it's definitely not wonderful. No amount of scrubbing, no amount of scrubbing can remove the smell of a day working as a fish. That's amazing. Thank you so much for being so open about everything and sharing your insights. I'm sure our listeners will find this episode very valuable. I know I have. So thank you so much for agreeing to be on it. It's great fun. Thank you very much. Don't forget to tune in for our next episode, where we will explore what it means to be an in-house lawyer with Chantelle Dutois, a senior legal counsel in the global litigation team at Shell. Thank you all for listening and remember to check out our social media and graduate recruitment website.